Hey everybody. Today we have two short stories for you. I wrote one, Andy wrote the other, and they're both about big change. Big changes personally, big changes in the community. For Chicagoans, there's a huge change. Chicago sports fans are looking at the possibility of the Bears moving to the suburbs because the Bears just bought Arlington Park. And my story is about Arlington Park because it was right by my house. My dad was there a lot <laughs> betting on horses. So I wrote a little bit about that, my experiences with the track. So that's huge Chicago news, massive news, moving the Bears from the city out to the suburbs. Uh, we discuss a little bit about that. And then Andy's story is going to cover his dad's farm sale and what it takes to clear out generations of farming equipment and mementos and um, all the things that we gather through our lifetimes and specifically what that what that's like for the farming community. So two really different stories, both talking about change. And Dan Higgs did not come with a story today, but had stories to share about his own farm sale, his land, his family land, and farm being um, getting ready for sale as well. So I hope that uh, you can relate to some of what we're talking about, how you navigate through these things. And it's really a lesson in detaching ourselves, I think. But enough of the psychology. Something to note for this episode is we had two microphones and three people. So if you're good at math, you know that's not enough microphones. And uh, so we kind of played a musical microphone game and it turned out okay. But the sound might be a little bit different this time around. Uh, so bear with us if there's any sound variations during this episode. And uh, thank you again for listening. The Podjectivity Network. My dad loved betting on horses. Every Saturday morning, he'd drive me three miles in his giant tan boat of a Pontiac from our house to the 7-Eleven with a radio tuned to AM Sports. Grainy, half-audible, buzzy male voices were always coming through the speakers, often more static than sound. I'd ride in the front, no seatbelt, just like my dad, whose seatbelt had maybe been buckled twice in the previous 10 years. As soon as we pulled into the parking lot, He'd hand me $2, and I'd head inside to pay for the racing form and run it back out to him. Then he'd drive over to Spunky Dunkers <laughs> for the Chicagoland area's best donuts. A dozen, please. Chocolate Bavarian cream, vanilla long john, butter crunch, plain glazed. That was family breakfast. When we got back to our middle-class suburban house, <laughs> my dad would often show me the racing form and let me pick horses based on their names. I don't remember specific horses, but I do remember looking for names that had that extra something, the sparkle of special that would catch my eye. Racehorses' names are not pet names. 
There's no Milo or Mittens or Buddy <laughs> on these racing forms. Power Cry, Tale of the Nile, Achilles, King Zion, Firmament, Try Try Again, Overanalytical, Cupid's Ghost. Every name felt like it captured something, maybe the essence of that horse or the feeling of the owner at the time, but I didn't necessarily understand what the words meant, though it was obvious the names were not recklessly chosen. Apollo you anywhere. <laughs> and Miss High and Mighty are names that aren't accidental. As a kid, I picked the names that spoke to me and hoped for a winner. For my dad, he picked based on numbers. What were the odds in the race? What surfaces did the horse prefer? Who was the jockey? How well had the horse been running? He strategized and budgeted for gambling, so even though he was betting on horses weekly and often daily, he didn't spend the family savings. It was a numbers game, and his official line to my mom was that he generally broke even, sometimes coming out ahead. <laughs> he didn't stick exclusively to the best odds to win. He liked the game of chance. He liked the trifectas. He liked the risk, but within reason. The closest horse racing track happened to be two miles from our house and with a shared parking lot to the Arlington Park Metro Station where my dad took the train to and from Chicago every day for work. What a coincidence. <laughs> Arlington Park, I think, <laughs> Arlington Park, I think it's actually Arlington International Racecourse now, is a gorgeous multi-million dollar grandstand horse racing track that first opened in 1927. It's historic in so many ways, particularly to my hometown's neighboring town, Arlington Heights, where it was built. It's heralded as a gem in the racing community, one of the most beautiful tracks in the country, maybe the world. Secretariat raced there in 73. In 81, they were the first to host a million-dollar thoroughbred race, the Arlington Million, which became its signature race. That first race, a 40-to-1 long shot had the lead until John Henry came from behind out of the turn and took the win in a photo finish. ESPN televised the Arlington Million in 92 and broke the cable audience record for thoroughbred racing. It was devastated by a fire in 85 and then rebuilt, coming back with glory, beautiful seating design, multiple restaurants, shiny tile floors, impeccable grounds, and this time catering to families. My dad studied the racing form every week and bet on races not just at Arlington but across the country at other tracks. The betting facility on, Arl on Arlington grounds next to the actual race course was called Trackside. He was there frequently enough that when my sister and I held his memorial there when he died at 69, one of the waitresses was openly weeping, <laughs> saying to us, oh, he loved you girls. <laughs> On occasion, when I was a kid, we'd go to the track as a family with a picnic lunch and watch the horses run. The energy of the track when I was a kid was a bit gritty, a little dark inside the facility, but not seedy. I remember lots of men, middle-aged men, like my dad, and cement floors, middle-aged Chicago-looking attendants, scattered scraps of paper, losing tickets, on the cement. The betting odds post-time and race highlights were featured on TV screens both inside and out on a giant board on the infield near the finish line. Place your bets inside with the attendants, choose your winners based on odds or a hunch, or like me, a name. And don't lose your ticket because there's no record of your bet except that three-by-three three piece of paper that you keep in your wallet. The stands themselves were open air on the home stretch of the track. It was essentially like a quarter of a sports stadium. Blue sky overhead with an overhang of shade. 
You could walk right up to the fence surrounding the track, see the finish line close up, and watch the dirt fly off the horse's hooves as they ran faster than any animal you've ever seen. Before the race, the horses were led out into a courtyard adjacent to the track, without their jockeys to showcase their beauty, their colors. What I remember from seeing the horses walk out was how exquisitely beautiful they were. So long and tight, lean muscle, energized like a taut rubber band. The jockeys would mount then wearing shiny jerseys. Colors were shimmery and bright, and the numbers on the horses large enough that I could call them out. Number eight is pink. Number three is orange. I remember concern about the riding crop, which to me looked like a whip. Would the horses be hurt? Did they like to run? Did they get extra apples and hay if they won? When the race trumpet fanfare played over the loudspeaker, do you guys know what that sounds like? Horses were led out onto the track and tension started to build. Final bets placed. They were walked by attending horses and were often jumpy and naughty, nipping at the adjacent horse, prancing a bit. These racing horses were young, sleek, and fast. They were ready to run and seemed to have not a lot of patience for getting to the gate. Once the horses were led to the starting gate, it opened fast, and the announcer came out over the speakers, and they're off. Like an auctioneer, he'd speed through the race. I couldn't make out many words, but would occasionally hear my horse's name called. Always audible was, here they come spinning out of the turn, and the crowd noise would build as the horses came down the final stretch. My dad did not cheer for horses. He watched silently, even as the crowd around him worked itself up. When the horses were led into the gate, you'd hear enthusiastic punches of voices. Come on, seven. Lucky five. <laughs> <laughs> Can I hear that in a Chicago accent, please? <laughs> and then on the first stretch, things would quiet just a bit. Horses running on the far side of the track almost are out of sight. And then as the race settled into what it would be, the horses finding their rhythm, it would become clear who is leading, who is tailing, who is in the pack in the middle. But nothing is decided until the final stretch. Anything can happen. When the, force, when the horses come into full view after the final turn, the crowd lathers up, roaring, elevating. Come on, eight, get it now, come on. Occasionally, a race required a photo examination of the finish. All the horses would immediately be stripped off their saddles and walked around, cooled down, except the ones in contest for the win. Those jockeys would stay in the saddle until the winner was announced, and then the crowd went wild. Pictures with the horses' owners, flowers, beaming smiles, glory, then the horse was sponged off. My dad, watching races silently, the same way he watched baseball, football, and basketball, without emotion, would occasionally show a sliver of feeling if he had a big win. His normally unaffected persona would reveal a spring in his step, not one to jump up and down, never cheering or clapping, but you might hear an, all right. Easy now, Yeah. Before he went to cash in a ticket after a race. My dad's been gone for 10 years, and the last time I'd been to the track was with him when I was a kid, maybe 35 years ago. But three weekends ago, I brought my three kids to Arlington as it was celebrating its final racing season. We went there before it would close its doors forever. It was set to be sold to the highest or most attractive bidder because the owner, Churchill Downs, felt it wasn't bringing in enough revenue. When we got to the track, I watched my kids as they walked through the entrance. It's pretty here. We got our racing forms when we showed our entrance tickets. I bought them overpriced hot pretzels and bottled water. 
I let my 8-year-old and 11-year-old look at the names on the racing form, reading the names to my 5-year-old who could not read. We sidestepped the computerized betting and went to the attendant. Who do you like in the fifth race? I asked him. The attendant, who looked like he'd been around long enough to likely... That's okay. The attendant, who looked like he'd been around long enough to likely had known my dad on sight, said he liked number seven. This also happened to be the horse my eight-year-old had picked, American Chaos. (laughs) Yeah, great name. We put $2 on American Chaos, fourth race, number seven to win. Me and my kids stood in the open air on a beautiful summer day, families with toddlers, young kids, couples, chatting, everyone excited and happy. We heard the trumpet fanfare played by an actual horn player who then broke out in and the crowd yelled tequila and we watched the horses walk out with their guide horses beautiful exquisite animals jockeys confident and in command a female jockey shiny bright colors my five-year-old girl said she liked horse eight whose number was pink and she wondered whether the riding crop would hurt the horse the announcer called post time and a few minutes later and they're off me and my kids jumped up and down like maniacs, shouting for our horses. Go seven! Seven! Go seven! The kids couldn't see the actual horses, except for bobbing jockeys and horse heads far in the distance on the far stretch. But they could see them clearly running as they hit the last turn. Here they come spinning out of the turn, and my kids said, They're going so fast! I've never seen a horse run like that! (laughs) My daughter started crying because she thought she was going to have to ride the horse. <laughs> she was like, I don't want to go that fast. American Chaos won by several lengths, and my eight-year-old beamed from ear to ear. I won! We were all jumping up and down and found the winning ticket and walked inside to claim our winnings. Four dollars was awarded to us for the winner, American Chaos, who had been favored, heavily favored. And my son looked as if he had won the lottery. I said, it's good that we're here. My dad loved this place, and it means something that you guys are here before they tear it down. feels like you're getting to know him a little bit. And they said, that was really fun, Mom. I'm glad we came. Which is true. They did say that. The end. Well done, Adam. What's the local vibe? like? Uh, so the place must employ a bunch of people, for one thing. But when the horse track closes and the football team comes, I guess horse uh, a horse apiece, uh, <laughs> you could have a job at the track or you could have a job at the stadium. So that's a push, I guess. I think there's like, wise and like two or three hundred people maybe employed hmm. directly by the track. But I don't I, that was just something I read. I don't know how accurate it is. And uh, I don't suppose a lot of business. Does the track support a lot of business around it? But the track is the business. Like, I don't that's know. where you eat. That's where you hang out. That's where you get your drinks. Like, you don't go to a... So that's uh, that's another question. You know, how much does it impact? A lot, I think. But yeah. I, I, like I said, I was kind of thinking about checking the local vibe, but it would involve contacting someone I haven't talked to in like 20 years. So Okay. Well, we're not going to force you. So, like... Lambeau Field, yeah. Uh, every restaurant that you can imagine, yeah, exists in Green Bay, Wisconsin. It's just on the road that the what's main, the name uh, of that road? You remember the main street? I don't know if that's Holmgren Way or whatever it's it is. Some, yeah, something uh, like that. 
it's jarring. Every single franchise restaurant yeah. there is, is on that stretch. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm, you know, Lambeau Field supports that. Mm-hmm. Uh, during football season and a, to some extent in the off season, but really during the season. So much That business. brings so many people. The hotels are full and every goddamn restaurant you can think of is got a line out the door. Yeah. Does, does the Arlington racetrack... Is it a phenomenon like that? It's not a special eight times a year thing, though. It goes on kind of year round. And does it support no, it's a huge not, ecosystem no. around it or just itself? No, because... I'll tell you what, Spunky Dunker survives no matter what <laughs> happens to that track. I was going to actually have a Spunky Dunkers campaign. If they're threatened at all by the, the bears coming, I would, I would do, like, uh, shows. I would do everything Benefits, I could to support this donut shop. I mean, the area around Arlington Park is all um, it's already developed with strip malls and restaurants. And the fact that the race track is there wouldn't have changed the environment any. So like it's Mm. by Ikea and it's already a population center. Woodfield Mall. And it's just some it's just a vomit of that's what makes it malls and and I'm sorry, but that's what makes it special. All this infrastructure has built up around it, but it's like the Arboretum is, in a sense, to the city of Madison, where it's like this park area that's been preserved because of tradition, and it's undeveloped. It's this sea of hundreds of acres of undeveloped, I mean, let's call those shitty lodgings for the jockeys and the shitty barns for horses undeveloped. They just doze it down. And have a blank slate to do whatever they want. We're not saying the bears are moving, folks, but Chris smells something in the air. <laughs> no, they bought the. the and it's not just donuts. They bought it. I mean, they but, bought but the why? property. <laughs> Is it just a practice facility, Dan? Uh, I haven't read anything lately because that's a real tangible thing that just happened. Like, oh, can is there any way to be more specific? Like, the McCaskey family bought it, or like. The Chicago Bears Incorporated bought the the land. I'm Not to get too nerdy, but like, the, yeah. but that's classic. I mean, that's perfect classic. Uh, it's what, like the rain story you were telling earlier. Sports machinations. It's like it's the most obvious fucking thing, bigger than life. But I have not read a story about it. Well, no, I think CBS Sports might have had a, a blip on there. I check that every day for scores. Chicago and stuff. Bears signed an agreement to pur- purchase Arlington Park. The team confirmed Wednesday morning. We'll see what happens. Is all we can say at this point, right? Yeah. But bye, bye, horses. If you want to see beautiful horses, how far do you have to go now? I don't know where the nearest one was. And it's not like this is going to relocate. Like, no. this is gone. It's and gone. Like, where is there a comparable place? Can you even comment on that? A comparable place somewhere else? In Illinois? In the Midwest? In the, even in the Midwest? I don't know. Because this was so close to home, I have no idea. Because you know they never had to go anyplace else. You know what's interesting about this to me mm-hmm. is that I'm about to talk to a place, about a place in my essay where it, it's a dying town. The farm towns are rural towns. We've talked about that. We know that. And I always thought of your place as being a place that just booming and growing and expanding. And the suburbs, you know, on some level, as much as you hate that because 
what has been developed and has been built has no soul, let's say. <laughs> it's pretty accurately true. Yeah. Except for Spunky Dunkers. God bless every single person that works or has ever worked in that establishment. And well, all my hot dog places close. Yeah. So Spunky Dunkers hot is dog the last is closed. soulful, Luke's is closed. sad, real human place standing around there. But the thing that is interesting to me is that you're lamenting the loss of something in a place that is otherwise fucking booming and thriving economically. Chicago is still a powerhouse that just like Madison, you know, the suburbs just Verona, Fitchburg, they boom, they expand, they explode, they, you know, it's it's all, you know, changing and growing. And to to come from a place like where I come from, where like my neighbor's farms, the places that were associated with families that had lived there, the family name was attached to that plot of land for four generations had been completely bulldozed. So there were no buildings or even trees anymore. And it had all become farmland and nothing. Like it was never there. It's a different... I. It's not that I don't feel for the loss that you're describing, but it's, it's like something else is coming in that's also probably going to replace it and give people a lot of jobs and a reason to be there. And it'll be vital still. You know what I mean? Maybe. I have to think about it. It's a personal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. But it also is symbolic, too. It feels tied closely to the renaming of stadiums and, like, corporatization of sports and... Um, well, it was already... It was already, but there was, like, this little pocket of... Is that what makes Spunky Dunkers? Is that why we love it so much? I keep, I hate to keep bringing it back to it, but that's one of one, isn't it? Spunky? I don't know. They might have one more somewhere else. I'm not sure. But, like, that's the vibe of where Spunky Chris Dunkers is a tiny donut shop with stools that spin. It's a cafe. It's an old school cafe that serves donuts and probably real wheat coffee. Or real strong coffee. I don't know because I never got coffee. There. Why haven't? Why didn't we? You know, I should. Well, I just grew up there, you know. But, but their donuts are the best I've ever had. But anyway, Delicious. the problem, the you know, my hometown was mom and pop from one end of Main Street to the other. And it's interesting to have sort of grown up in an era that was pre-Superstore. Where a hardware store was Morgan's Hardware Store. And it wasn't even True Value or Ace or Thin Menards or whatever. It was just the place where you got your tools on the main street, the one street that had businesses on it in town. That's, Dan, in my point of reference or frame of reference. Mm -hmm. Whereas you were like ahead of the curve, like the, the superstores had already arrived in Chicago when you were growing up, I think, almost. Your shopping and living experience was like... You know, big. It, it was all shopping, right? Yeah, big shopping malls and things like that. Whereas we had Marge's grocery store with three aisles, and she knew your parents and your grandparents and that kind of thing. Right. And yeah, 
So, should I get into it here, or are we ready, Chris? Ready. <laughs> okay. So, I don't know, a couple months ago, in August, uh, I went back to Northwest Iowa, where I grew up, to help my dad prepare for a farm sale. He'd had, this was the second of two sales. He'd had, he'd originally planned to do it pre-pandemic but then the pandemic hit and he was like well fuck it's hard to do a conventional sale while you pull all your equipment out in the yard and people come and bid on it you know but now it's hybrid selling with online action and the live sale happening and auction houses have had to sort of keep up with the time and but they still have the guy in the cowboy hat with the belt buckle with the gibberish you know kind of the, the good hot auctioneer flow you know all of that kind of stuff it's exciting it's fun i um i remember going to him with my dad as a kid but to have it happening to our place was a completely different thing so he'd sold a lot of his big machinery and stuff in the first round of online auctioning his adaptation to covid was all right well fuck i'll just list my tractors on this newfangled internet and people snatched that shit up and he got decent prices for it. And those were the big money items. But he still had a ton of random shit stuffed in barns. Not only his, but as I mentioned earlier, four generations worth of people. Stuff stacked in barns, the attics of machine sheds. Dan, you... Rain on the scarecrow. <laughs> Blood on the plow. <clears throat> so... So I was going back for the the task of taking my dad's and his dad's and his dad's shit out of the barns and machine sheds, dragging it out into the yard, putting it on pallets and tarps for people to bid on. Some of it was my stuff and stuff from my childhood and just a lot to process, I suppose, emotionally, too, just following the story of family history to its conclusion. Um but also seeing my dad vulnerable and old enough to be like, you know, he has a friend, he has friends and he has a posse, but like people in his class are, have died and a lot of them, a number of them have passed and they can't work like they used to. And I knew that, uh, he needed a relatively young set of hands to drag all the heavy shit out of those goddamn buildings so uh rather than hire somebody because i'm a poet who delivers wine i and, and it's a farmer ethic to do it yourself you don't hire somebody to go clean up your shit or fix your faucet or change your tire or your oil for fuck's sake you do it yourself so anyway here we go the farm was originally purchased by my great-grandfather peter who was, by all accounts, an epic dick. <laughs> Perhaps not surprisingly, quite successful. He was an industrious German immigrant who came to the small town of Everly in northwest Iowa around the turn of the 20th century and scraped together enough dough to establish the Nath Farmstead, about seven miles southwest of the little upstart town of Everly. He and his wife, Ida, had four kids. The eldest son, Elmer, took over the farm when Pete retired into town. 
Elmer had four kids of his own, and the second eldest son, Roger, took over the operation when Elmer hung it up. Roger had three, the youngest of which was me, a weird, artistic type that really had no business being on a farm, but happened to be born there. I was a daydreaming disappointment to my old man, mostly talking to, or mostly taking too much after my mom's side, which was chock full of music-loving, dance-instructing, portrait-drawing, intensely sensitive oddballs. I think the old man and I have grown to appreciate each other's differences as much as possible and have come to love each other for who we actually are instead of what we may have expected or wished for in the past. Since I left the house, my dad has made efforts to connect that put him so far outside his comfort zone. I laugh every time I remember seeing that burly old farmer occupying a discreet corner of Paisley Park patiently waiting for me to stop drooling over Prince's guitars and move on to the next room. He had less than zero personal interest in Prince or the artist's studio turned museum, but he knew I'd dig it, and he got his tickets. I particularly cherish the image of him looking over one of Prince's uh, performance outfits on display that was basically a thong with some straps, perhaps a tassel or two, and a picture of the artist in that get-up getting down. The old man raising judgmental eyebrows, but keeping his peace and pretending to enjoy himself for my benefit. It's gestures like these over the years that in part motivated me to take a week off when I heard him plotting a farm sale, which was held this past August of 21. The other part, I suppose, was that I saw an opportunity to get some closure Four generations worth of family history there. And, sin and since I'd left with a whimper as a panic-stricken teenage kid in the late 90s, I felt compelled to come back all grown up, all grown, and up to the challenge of clearing out that big-ass barn surrounding outbuildings, dragging every last artifact from each coon-shit, rat-skeleton, <laughs> cobwebbed corner. In the painful past, Dad would have micromanaged my every move, and likely expressed dissatisfaction with my effort. But this time around, he knew well enough to stay the fuck out of my way and express genuine gratitude at the end of every day. Gratitude was also shown through my old man's primary love language, food. <laughs> I had hot breakfast sandwiches and coffee to start each day, fresh sweet corn and mouth-watering pork loin for lunch and dinner. In the fridge, all the bush light and bottled water a man could possibly desire. The work was hard enough and made that much harder by the unrelenting heat and humidity of August in Iowa. I tried to open some doors in the musty old buildings, but they weren't all functional, and those that opened were small, so the workspaces were filthy and dark and crammed with decades' worth of the endless odds and ends farmers pick up as they fix and replace parts for everything under the goddamn sun. And on top of it, Dad's a bit of a collector. As a lifelong fan of westerns, having grown up watching John Wayne and the like, he'd procured a Conestoga wagon, which he liked to pull his grandkids around in during community festivals. The wagon had a critical break in the undercarriage we had to repair, and the sensation of seeing him crawl under that thing at 70-something and struggle with it was powerfully nostalgic. 
Just like the old days, I was there to hold stuff, hand him tools. Only this time, I was focused, a little less petulant, perhaps. And when we were through, the wagon rolled onto the trailer, the gent who bought it, and managed to stay in one piece through the whole process. It was a bit sad to see Dad's life laid out on the ground all around the farm prior to the sale. Not to suggest my old man isn't more than the sum of his shit. But sometimes things are more than things. You see them and they trigger memory. You recognize that at one time they were useful, and now they are being laid out and either given away or sold off for pennies on the dollar. It didn't help that leading up to the sale, there had been something of a drought. It hadn't rained in weeks, is what I'd been told. Come the day of the sale, of course the sky opened and spent the better part of the day pissing on our parade. It would have been nice to have a bigger turnout and see some bidding bring better prices on things, but it wasn't really about the money as much it was as it was clearing out the place and preparing uh, the acreage for sale. Dad hasn't set a firm date on letting the place go and maintains a rustic apartment space in the machine shed where he can stay when he heads back to participate in planting and harvest season. I was nearly moved to tears when I saw on the headboard of the bed he'd set up for himself in his machine shed apartment. A picture of himself as a new dad, holding my older sister in his lap just after she was born. Those old pictures will get you, man. I couldn't help but reflect on my little girl who was already 14 going on 30. All these symbols of time passed, stretched out on the yard, propped up on my dad's headboard, found in some coon shit cobwebbed corner, old toys I'd made by hand using too much of my dad's electrical tape or sweet handle to a homemade sword. I felt the urge toward the end of the trip to visit my grandparents' grave and assemble a bouquet of wild stuff from around the farm to fill the vases on their gravestones. I've been cynical about cemeteries most of my life, complaining about the waste. But here I was, making bouquets for remembrance needing to assemble some tangible expression of appreciation for the folks that gave me my name and the place it was for four generations, home. I don't cry much, as I learned not to from the stoic folks that raised me. And I'd been too busy or exhausted much of the week to be reflective, but I was surprised by a few tears as I assembled the flowers and corn tassel bouquets from my grandparents' grave. Perhaps I shouldn't have been surprised. I guess it was normal enough response, given the circumstance. Perhaps it was partially from relief. I'd done what I'd set out to do, and it wasn't fucking easy. I'd proven that I'd come quite a ways from the cowering kid that was scared of his shadow to a man who drug heavy, obsolete, and awkward bits of iron and lumber through sweltering heat and choking dust to daylight, where it all might be taken away as though it were never there. Dad was grateful, and proud even, or at least I think so. Do you know what was in my dad's tool bin? Hammer, pliers, wrench, shrub, clippers, slippers. <laughs> End did, of did list. Them? Did he use them? End of list. <laughs> Two thousand pounds of nudie magazines. <laughs> A lawnmower. And shrub clippers manual. Hey, I still have some of those, and they work just fine for what I'm working with out in front of my 
my sidewalk. But I'm guessing Tom wasn't doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who took a lot of pleasure in a well-groomed hedge. <laughs> Unless someone else was grooming that hedge for him to observe. Unless somebody was gambling on him doing it. <laughs> I'm just thinking, so I just recently moved and the impulse to just get rid of things is so strong. Simplicity. And fresh start. As you're describing just the layers and layers and layers of acquired stuff. And I I feel like it would be a recipe for misery for me. And I wonder are all farmers like that? Where they just well, I might need this, so I'm gonna just keep it. I'll set it to the side. I might need this part at some point so I'm just going to set it to the side I this might be useful someday I'm just going to set it to the side is that like a okay, if I and I'm going to yeah I'm going to chime in with my experience and say yes uh, it's also a well we're all about the same age and our our parents are all sort of the same age uh Pre-early, mid, or late depression era, uh, whether you lived in a city or on a farm, you didn't throw anything away. You, you know, I don't know if your mom... It's too good to toss. How how old's your mom? 82. So does she... She's got some of these habits for sure, and she was never a farmer, or was she? Uh, I'll tell you what the difference is. The practicality of farm collection versus just collecting pretty things to decorate your house it's sort of like it's a different scale dan oh yeah and i'm gonna but i'm gonna say and you have acres and outbuildings of storage to put your shit and stuff your shit and you know and for shit to collect in the grove and the wooded area around your place it's just a fucking landfill it's sort of a it's a chicken and egg thing i mean these when did peter uh by the place and turn of the century area early 1900s okay so didn't have a lot of extra money and uh but it's i'm just it's hand in hand it is it's depression era thinking but it's also just you need everything you always need everything all the time you never know when you're gonna we're talking pre hardware store pre menards world yes this was an era where you needed to diagnose and fix your own problems as and you're out in the possible. country i will back off of my depression talk and then say it's more of that well but because stuff just wasn't available but depression ethics still they play into it play into it because my dad was raised by someone who lived through the depression and i interviewed my great aunt who grew up on that same farm but in the 20s where where's that There's interview lost but when i did the bandwagon tour I sat down with her, and I, at least if if the as sad as it is that I can't track down the tape, at least I have the recollection and the experience of having sat down with her, and heard her tell the story of how Ida, my great great grandmother, married Peter, not so charming, but successful. <laughs> she passed when Elma was young, so 
part of the reason that Ida uh, and Elmer. Yeah, part of the reason that Elmer married Shirley is because Shirley was brought to the farm to tend to the children's and the womanly work of the farm as a young woman. And Elmer was like, well, you're roughly my age and the opposite sex. Let's get married. Because that's what dating looked like in (laughs) 42. That is so hot. It is hot, Dan. And it's hot enough to produce three Are you between the ages of 20 and 35? Hot. Does your do your ovaries work? <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> How are your ovaries? Can you make a good biscuit? I assure you they did not talk that much. <laughs> no, no, it was unspoken <laughs> stoic romance, Dan. This is to borrow from last episode, uh I think it was last episode uh Winesburg, Ohio, that book I read. Where like that's your world, you're born into it, and that's it. You're not going to meet someone from out of town and you're not going to, you're, it's, there's five guys and four women and. Why did I hear this joke from Jay Leno? Someone's going to be left out. But I heard this from Jay Leno recently where he said, do you you hear, here's a joke. Did you hear about the Midwestern guy who loved his wife so much? He almost told her. (laughs) (laughs) So that was Elmer and Shirley and they produced Roger. Uh, who produced me? I had something for him culturally to look at the difference between now when you can essentially like when you think when you go to the mechanic and and you're like, okay, I need my car fixed, and they say to you, um, I don't have the part, and you're like, God, and they're like, it'll take three days. For it to get here. And you're like, ah, I can't believe this. Or like ordering from Amazon where it's like, if you don't have Prime, it might take a week to get to you. But pretty much anything you can get within three days. So to hear this collection of stuff, mostly because that was not the reality. Well, here's here's a... A more specific, like a concrete example. Of yeah. My dad had roughly 6,000 gallon, <laughs> plastic gallon jugs that at one time held hydraulic fluid. Okay. Or oil or whatever else. And just anybody need a five gallon plastic bucket? I've got 5,000 of them. And I also have 6,574 small cups and jars full of random screws. And nuts. And oh my God! Bolts this and is familiar. Washers and and electrical stuff and plumbing fittings and whatever else. It, it was essentially his own little hardware store and and so many tools and all of that. So that was one thing. But what I dug were the the personal effects and the things like the kitchen appliances. There were some of those things that you had to like crank or clamp onto the counter. And they weighed fucking 57 pounds or whatever, iron. Why would he keep that? And had these wicked looking spikes and a blade underneath. And he was like, oh, that was a... Meat grinder. Apple core, apple peeler. And you're feeling the fucking heft of this thing and looking at it. And I'm fascinated by that shit. I love that it's a museum. 
on some level, like the horse harnesses that I talked to you that are hanging over on another corner of the barn, like past the drudgery of, you know, just putting stuff in the scrap pile and dragging garbage out and putting garbage where it belongs. There were really nicely crafted, probably like hand forged wooden spindled pulleys that, you know, ropes ran around for moving hay bales and things like that that are solid, beautiful objects that when you take them out of Iowa or a rural America and you put them in a suburban, you know, resale, rustic, chic boutique, it's they're 80, fucking... It's $80. Oh, God. Yeah, you you can make some nice bang. What is the what is the impulse then though for something that's outdated? You can get an apple peeler. Why do you keep the things that have been updated? You don't need an you don't need it and I'm talking about like the difference between what I'm saying where if you need replacement things or you need essential things and you I can't I think it's because it's the th- it's the craft that went into making the thing that makes it still appealing. It I might say on some level in this in a way that sorry that we're not gonna keep our old microwave when it breaks because it's a fucking piece of plastic generic bullshit. There's nothing substantial about it. But that peeler weighed a hundred and seven pounds and had a crank on it that was really satisfying that you could turn in the it's just a look back in time. It's a it's a historical artifact. I would say for me, it sounds a lot like sentimentality misdirected. Why is that misdirected? Because they're objects. They're not people. So objects, no objects matter, no matter how much no, like, I'm not family history that is imbued don't into matter, it. But the amount, the vast amount, the sheer volume of stuff that you're talking about. You can cross a line. And and that's, that's uh, it's good that you brought up that point. Because All right, break it up, you two. Wh- sorry, one of my points was... Having a lot of shit can be like a security blanket That's what I'm saying. to some people, but there's it can also be like a fucking anchor when it comes time to fucking deal with it or for the next generation to deal with it. So the gift that I gave my dad, I think, was to be able to come in at this point and be like, look, you've had your security blanket long enough. Now it's time to rip that fucker off and you can make your new one in Wisconsin or whatever, but we got this land, this family land that needs to go to somebody else. And it's not right to saddle them with all of our shit. So that was my question. So yes, I am going through much the same thing. Ours was not a producing farm per se. The Higgs family didn't farm. Uh, My folks took a swing at it when they were much younger. Uh, After they bought the place in like 68 uh, dad got out of the air force and, uh, well, that was home forever. And that's where they wanted to be carried out of. They wanted to be carried out, you know, uh, in a box. They never wanted to leave. In the early days, they did try to that's farm. morbid and romantic at the oh, same it's, time. But it, it, yeah, it's beautiful though. Um, they tried it in the early days. We had chickens. We had a couple of cows. I think at the peak we might have had a couple of cows. And I'm this is when I'm like three, four, five years old because my earliest, earliest memories are of getting rid of our last cow. I'm a, I must have been five. And her name was Butterball. 
and I remember when Butterball got loaded on a truck. You know, five-year-old memory, just like patchwork, fuzzy. But I remember that. I remember the. I I just remember that. So, ours what the neighbors always rented our farmland, so it was a working farm, I suppose. Uh, but we didn't farm it. Hard stop. Uh, but we still had all the shit. We have all the shit of a working farm because that's where I get back to the depression thing is my folks didn't throw anything out and everything is of value. And that is a big, big hurdle that we're starting to clear right now with mom. Because the reality is not everything is of value. Oh, and and my biggest question in all that was like I've been so my brother, my mom and I have been up to the farm a total of, I don't know, four Saturdays of like total commitment where we are just, it's full on purge, empty a room and deal with whatever's in there. You were down there, you like 10 days or something, right? Like a week. So I figured that's what, that's what I was wondering the whole time is like, wow, they are going to go down there in like military fashion and just knock this out. But it's ongoing. It's, You've done the hard, the heaviest lifting, but it's still going on. It just not. This doesn't happen fast. It it doesn't just. Okay, we're all done. We've got fucking lives to manage outside yes. of dealing with this stuff. Yes, and the stuff, and and I was focused on the depression because we weren't so much farmers, but my folks were definitely depression people. It was a farmstead as well, so you had the outbuildings, you had the space to yes. put shit and collect yes. shit, and, and yeah. Room. All the stuff you said, the decades old, whatever, cow shit, chicken shit, raccoon shit, all the shit, pigeon shit. Skeletons. Our barn is filled with pigeon shit um, and skeletons and uh, the things. And the, the air is, uh, it's unbreathable in some of these spaces. Um, the, you wonder, boy. This is where I should have written too, because it's so much, it's so much at once. You still can. Uh, Dad never threw anything away, and when you're up there getting rid of it, you're sort of mad at him. So, like my parents, when they hit about seventy, but you love him. Oh, and forgive him, and instantly, right in the same moment that you're trudging around with all this shit and throwing it in the truck and cutting yourself on it, you're you you don't hold it against him. Uh, but yeah hindsight being what it is when they turned about 70 they should have started getting rid of a few things started cleaning up a few things but they just didn't so it's a lesson for you absolutely absolutely uh not to go too far off the rails but when it hit me who's gonna get my action figures that's all i wonder but go on dan it uh so i was raised by these people these Depression-era people. Uh, just pretend I'm typing right now. Uh, I was raised by these people who never threw anything away and emphasized the importance of that always. And my parents, uh, older than most people's parents. Uh, my parents are, well, my dad's dead. He died when he was 84, and my mom's 84 now. Their leftovers had leftovers. How old's Raj? 73. And your mom's like 80. 82. So... Comparable. You're, My mom was older. You're in the ballpark. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm probably wrong about that. Sorry, Dad, but you're 70-something. Okay. Um, 
And I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. So as a kid, what did I do? I collected. I collected everything. If I had two of something, I was a, a an aspiring collector. And as soon as I got three of it, I was a collector. You built the security blanket because you were surrounded by the security blanket? Well, pre-internet, you know. Cock rings. <laughs> In a pre-internet world, uh, that's another thing about cleaning out your home place is like the pre-internet world is brought back to life like in vivid color and it hits you in the face like a shovel. Uh, all the stuff you collected. Uh, I collected uh, uh, beer cans. If I got three different beer cans, collection. <laughs> got to get more. And then okay. people with bottle caps. Uh, and then people start... Stamps? And then I collected stamps because my dad worked at the post office and baseball cards. I collected baseball cards and football cards and basketball cards, uh, matchbox cars, collected matchbox cars, collected, uh, toy tractors vigorously that lasted into my, uh, that lasted into my junior high and even high school years. Uh, uh big confession here for our, for, for our listeners that I went to high school with is, yeah, I was playing with tractors that whole time when I was alone. So, yeah, um, that ethic, I guess, instilled by my parents, my mom really largely, too, like, she's a big part of that. Um, they were growing things, canning things, probably. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're You and me are just singing the same song. You You said, when you started saying... This big device that you clamp to the counter, I was just like, apple peeler, apple peeler. It's an apple peeler. And sure enough. And it it stabs the core out, too. Like, when you're done. I just love holding something up to my dad, though, and being like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and being like, oh, yeah, that's to take the wool out of the sheep's ear, or whatever. You know? So uh, we've talked at length on this podcast about, well, I know I have, uh, about not to be a dick or anything, but doing things differently than mom and dad just to do it differently just like evolution i mean the times that we were raised in and you know they're different than our folks and it's only natural to a degree but it's still loving them through that that is the i think what we what we both manage manage to do i mean you you the conflict that you described is perfect to what i experienced and it was nice for me that the love won out you know like whatever hassle there was i did want to demonstrate to dad like hey this is a big effort but Mm -hmm. you know it's okay yeah it's you're worth it yeah it's manageable and can we'll do this 30 i mean 30 35 years later it's very different it's it's and now and i know at least with my mom you know my brother and i were the grown-ups now you know you you can't expect an 84-year-old widow to handle this. Yeah, but how much of her being there saying, oh, no, I don't want you to give right. that away. Right. Is that an uh, obstacle for you ever? or no? Well, yes. Short answer, yes. Longer answer, my good buddy Rob O'Keefe back in uh, college. I was still a bit of a hoarder and collector. You know, I just left home. I'd only been gone for a couple years. You were pizza boxes. So, like, every inch of uh, a dorm room that I lived in I shared with Rob was covered with posters and stuff pulled out of Rolling Stone magazine like every inch because that's just collage how it was. collage everything's a collage everything's a 
you know, it's too cool to let go of. I saved, save, save, save stuff. And he called me on it and he was like, what the, you know, what the fuck is going on here, man? I mean, besides not going to class, it appears that all you do is just accumulate stuff. Like, yeah, well, you know, I just like collect and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, he's like, oh, it's just the opposite of my house. And I was just, I was flabbergasted. Like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, my buddy Rob was the youngest of like, sorry, Rob, seven kids at least. And he was the youngest by like 12 years. So like his next sibling was like, a, you know, having grandkids for God's sakes. Like, and his mom was exactly the opposite. Like we have too many goddamn kids. We don't save anything. If we save anything, this house will collapse under its own weight. If it ain't getting used right now, it's gone. And that stuck with me for, it's still with me. Uh, from a dorm room in Eau Claire to right now. And that hit me like a hammer. I love those analogies, the shovel, the hammer. Uh, when I, when we found out we were having twins, so like we had our first kid, we lived in an apartment, and we're like, shit, we need a house now. We need privacy and so on, you know, so we can beat this kid. And, uh, and so we're not disturbing our neighbors and stuff. Uh, we get to a house, we get out of our apartment on the west side of Madison, real nice place. We buy our first house, kind of a shithole, big step down from an apartment that's maybe 10 years old to buying a house that was like built in the 40s. And you're like, oh, hmm, this is how it goes. You just go backwards. Our toilet won't flush. Yeah, you just go backwards. Oh, these windows don't stay open. Uh, everything's drafty. Um, and then we find out. What's that smell? And then we find out we're having twins. And that flipped a switch in me like. After I laughed hysterically at the, at the, what is it called? The sonogram, the sonogram photo where Lori's like, take a close look at this. And I was like, what? Baby A and baby B. What, what are you talking about? And then, oh, that's two babies. And then when I regained consciousness, it hit me like a hammer and I went on a mission. Did it twist you like a ridge? What Rob O'Keefe told me back in the dorms I started living it. I started in the attic and I worked my way top down in the house and got rid of every goddamn thing that was not important or in use right now. It's interesting that you had twins after you had one mm -hmm. because if you had had twins first, you might not have had that impulse. Right. Because you knew all the shit that comes with one baby. True. The swings and the strollers and the carriers and the clothes and the... Without our baby soap and just on and on and diaper balm, <clears throat> everything. It's just it just happened. As soon as I found out we were having twins, I just started throwing shit away. Well, we don't have room for two more. And so. it's like we yeah we, what can we do? Mm -hmm. You know the whole thing of having kids. This is a whole nother podcast. It's carrying the pyramid upside down on your back. Mm. You're young. You're making probably the least money in your career that you're going to make. It's ridiculous. And you're saddled with. Fucking kids. And you spend your time working. That doesn't make sense either. Why do you retire so, after and, your kids are grown? And if you just bought a house here at the beginning of sense. a mortgage, which is the most goddamn punitive thing <laughs> out there, that's mm -hmm. a, that's its own podcast too. Mm. Uh, we can't do anything, but I can get rid of shit. I can make space. That's all I what can do. What did you get rid of that you shouldn't have? Well, that's... Uh, I'll tell you what I... One regret is the wiener ducks I have a phone 
My kids Ooh. had a great, great toy that was a wiener dog that it's long elongated midsection were the keys of a xylophone. Mm-hmm. And if I still had that, I'd work it into recordings and compositions that I'm I'm doing now. It would be sentimental. It'd be hilarious. It'd be quirky. It's a lovely thing. It's gone, guys. It's gone because I would I I would get and I get into mad purging modes where I just I like what you're I dig what you're saying, Chris. About you know, there's pros and cons to that impulse that you recognize. I'm sure of. I want to fucking get rid of everything mm-hmm. because it's the it's that double-edged deal that I was referring to earlier of of not just a security blanket but as we look at my wall I've heard Chris describe my shelving as sort of oh just looking at your life mm-hmm. and over that you will see toy tractors that I collected as a child, my preschool diploma, pictures of me with my children, uh, some action figures that I played with as a kid, George Carlin that I discovered in college, you know, uh, uh, just as some touchstones and some touch points of things that were important to me that represent a certain period that, you know, it's archival on some level and you can cross the line with that, but without it, you know, um, it, I learned to decorate through my mom a little bit, which was rather than making a place that looked like it belonged in a magazine, it was, how do I make this place reflect who I am, who I've been, where I've been, who I love personalizing stuff. Part of, I think, the issue... I, I enjoy that. It's fun. You know, it's play. With with um, kids and having babies, wanting to keep those special items and not necessarily knowing what the special items will be, the ones that hold specific meaning to you, until maybe five years later. And you're like, oh, that one toy that, the, that they always... But, but in the moment, because kids bring such chaos... My impulse is if I if I can create as much order as possible, which means simplicity and like getting rid of shit we don't need. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see piles of six pacifiers. I want like one pacifier and I don't want to see towers of things that don't have proper boxes to go in. May like I? that's the challenge because if I knew I was having twins, which unfathomable, I don't know. Just the mental people do it though. You would have. You would have. You would. You adjusted your babies. Mm. You know, being a being a parent itself. It, don't sell yourself short. Really, seriously. If you if you raised a baby, and and the reason that I feel like I can speak on this is I was a manny to twins, after I'd never had them, that were infants. Chris is laughing at the term manny. Go ahead, laugh at me, mock me, freely. Aaron O'Brien's beautiful girls, Callie and Estelle. I had the privilege, the extreme privilege of hanging with them for throughout the better part of a winter some years ago. And it did present extra challenges, but I'll say this about it. And and I can't speak to it as much as Dan can, but like, let's not... By the way, Chris, you're having twins. Yeah. <laughs> let's not underplay the difference in the shift that just carrying the responsibility of being totally responsible for another young vulnerable life or 
too. You know, it's it's there are degrees of of sacrifice and change that differentiate these things, but like the distance between one and two is less than zero and one or and to one and two because being responsible for another human life and caring for a baby and that's a huge fucking responsibility is all I'm saying. And and two makes it that much harder, but but I you know, you adapt and you find ways to keep to get them both napping at the same time because they've got the little rocking strollers and you can hold the book with one hand and you can and you can bob the rocking chairs with a foot on each one and keep them bobbing and rocking and reading and and it's not that far removed from when you were just doing it with one foot and holding the book that's a concrete example of like of what we're talking about and i i loved it i loved it uh that's a great challenge and a great time period to have passed through but you know that almost seems like another lifetime now isn't that interesting when you have kids it's hard to even remember almost a guy that had babies isn't it dan yeah yeah it is at this age looking back it is kind of brief it's funny how brief it is it feels like it'll never end uh hang in there listeners with babies uh it will pass and you will eventually get to the podcast table and be like, it really wasn't that much. Like, it was just a few years. I just ate lunch with my college son earlier Yeah, today. Uh, yeah. To what... Uh, Chris, you make a nice foil to both of us, both having grown up on farms and watched just the straight-up hoarding of just everything. Uh, you grew up in suburbia, and sure, you needed stuff too, but you didn't have a barn and a machine shed and a calf barn, and a chicken coop, and all these things. Uh, so you're a good foil for this. You're just like, what's the deal with the stuff? Like, what's the, what kind of, is this some kind of psychological thing? So you're, a, as an outsider to that, you're a perfect, is it a you know, psychological you're perfect thing, to bounce though? this off of. It is, it's practical, but it's also psychological too. Uh, the stuff, well, we're going a lot of places. First of all, I look at your shelves and like, Everything up there makes perfect sense to me. You know, knowing you as I do, I can look at any object up there and be like, oh, yeah, that's why he's got this. Like, that fucking snowman made out of cotton balls? Like, <laughs> obviously, Aunt so-and-so made that. And, uh, you know, that's precious. I, and I'm not going to name everything on the shelf. Well, most of it. Uh, and getting rid of, you know, the doggy xylophone and uh, some toys maybe that were precious. Like, between the way I was raised with that ethic the depression ethic and my buddy Rob O'Keefe in the dorms who opened my eyes to like, what? You don't keep everything. You don't keep every fucking ticket stub to everything you ever went to. What? What's wrong with you? Uh, to having the twins and just wholesale, just eliminating stuff. Uh, I lost a lot of, like I used to be a pack rat, uh, I'm not going to say I'm not sentimental, but I lost a lot of like sentimentality for stuff. Yeah. And became, and then once you get kids, like, well, stuff just doesn't matter anymore. Once you have kids, like, have you, I, you know, it's not a person. The it's like, you don't have a lot of stuff means you don't love your kids. Yeah, obviously. Obviously. Uh, it's, I lost, you know, I, we don't even hardly take pictures of 
our kids or our family much. It happens. It, it almost feels alien. Because you don't love them, Dan. Part it, of, well, I, it feels alien because yeah. I've gotten, I've gone so far in the other direction that I am just like, why is the living experience not enough? We're living it. We're living it right now. And this is where I know. So for all my bitching and all my affect I have about kids, you know, uh, it's, we're very lucky. Our family is very lucky because every day is a brand new adventure. And like, I don't have to hold on to yesterday every day. Like, cause today's going to be a whole nother bunch of wild shit that goes on. There's, there's, and, and I'll, and I'll, I promise I'll shut up. No, no, no. It's good. Uh, that, that has just been, that ha- I am just hardened, if that's the right word for it. I'm just hardened to that. Is like, I don't need a fucking picture of this. I don't, I don't need anything because I lived it. I've lived it and I live in the, that's the shit we talk about all the time, being present and living in the moment. Like all of my life has kind of taught me how to do that. And this just didn't happen five minutes ago. This has been happening for a long time. Uh, I'm just so that way. Like, I'm living it now. Live it. Enjoy it. Be in the moment. Taste it. Smell it. Remember what everybody said. And then tomorrow's new. And we can talk about it and we can reminisce and stuff. But, like, I don't need to just keep holding on to stuff. I still hold on to little things occasionally. But I have two things to say about that. One is... I had that exact same, I lived so sparingly and sparsely until I had children and like didn't really have furniture and just didn't care. You know, it was sort of like poets, the essentials, poets, ethics. When my grandfather died, well, let's see, he was the third of four to die. So my grandmother had Alzheimer's. And you tried like the tiny house thing too, right? Like you, you've kind of gone down that road a little bit that was a disaster but yeah um when he died well but you gave it a like consistent with your no consistent with your ethos that you're talking about here Mm -hmm. of minimal the minimalist yeah you even tried the tiny house it didn't go great but it wasn't super tiny but it was small it makes perfect sense go on so when he died it hit me very hard that it's not just one life that's going away when he died. It was like the entire generation, that whole experience that they carried with them was going to disappear. And what would only be left was if they'd written something down mm-hmm. or if they had mementos uh, from that time, like rotary phones mm-hmm. or what you know whatever else represented that time otherwise it would be gone with them when they die it sort of like hit me in a different way so then I started thinking well I've already given away so much stuff is there anything I'd like to keep and it feels sentimental but it also feels like a little bit of a let's not forget where we came from kind of a feeling. And the second thing I had to say about what you were, um, the difference between living in a suburban house 
where you don't have a barn and the things that you collect aren't big. Like you don't need to build another shed for more tractors or more equipment. Grasping the idea that you would spend money to house more shit is crazy to me. Like you take money and you go have experiences out in the world. Like you go places you've never been or you eat things you've never eaten or you it's sort of like the idea that or you buy records <laughs> yeah right the idea that you would like uh invest into the spot that you live in was foreign to hot because people i guess decorated you know they remodeled but it wasn't like the juice of farm life where like you're investing, you live there, you work there, it's hi- your history is there, your community's there, your it's like the roots are strong, and so to like invest in that financially and to like build a collection of things that are meaningful to you, even if they're big and even if it means you build another barn and even if you, it's sort of like that's I don't even know how to process that kind of investment because it's the op it's really there's i have no frame of reference for it at all yeah i so andy and i have been you know extracted from the farm world uh where that is the ethic and now we live in this suburban setting where we don't constantly need to hold on to every goddamn thing so we've adapted we have adapted, obviously. Um, Except for my action figure. And like, and for me, it's records. Like, I don't, I, uh, every time I walk through my house or my garage or whatever, I, I am just gripped by a feeling of like, I want to get rid of that. I'm so sick of looking at that. I don't use it. But I can't just throw it in the dumpster because like that's not recyclable or, you know. It's just, I'm just doing this math all the time. Of like, how can I get rid of this? Which dumpster can I sneak this into? Oh, maybe the one at work. I mean, uh, because when it goes there, there's no rules. Like, I can throw away these old swings that are made of chain and plastic. Uh, or there, it's okay. You know what? If but you, not in my dumpster. I can't put them in mine. If you were, because I'm environmentally conscious. If you were from a rural area of a certain era, what you do is you dig a hole. Fuck. Dig a hole. Just throw it in the woods. Throw it in the woods. <laughs> start it on fire. Yeah. No matter what it is. And, and or that, what that releases into the environment or the water table. And bury it, Dan. But not like not like we just littered our whole woods like this. But we did have a spot where like old washing machine. Throw it in the woods. Oh my god. And you nature. Land. You had acres to have your own landfill. Dan, yeah. is there a baby gear graveyard in your backyard? No, it's just the baby swings and cribs and shit if no. we dig deep no. enough but like in your backyard now this is gonna be this will be counter oh my God, it's a baby bjorn counter to a lot of well i'm i'm sure i'm wrong i usually am but like you know something like an old washing machine like you throw that out in the woods nature will take care of it it'll disappear metal it'll disappear it eventually it's disappears got plastic in it probably yeah. it all break sunlight it's the power of the sun and the elements are quite incredible. 
Now, I'm not trying to say like we should stop recycling. That, that's not the point. I'm just saying. Public service announcement, listeners. Yeah. Take your washing machines and go dump them in the nearest forest. <laughs> Take them to the woods. Love, Dan. Uh, yeah. So I can't walk through my house without just, just this, the desire to get rid of stuff. Uh, and But it's it has funneled itself, though, into records. That's the one thing now that I allow myself. And even that, I'm like, I have this much space to store records. If it exceeds this, I have to start getting rid of some to let new ones in. Like, I'm not going to just fill the house now with records. Like, I have to be responsible to myself in that regard. So, like, the stuff, you know, your dad reorganized a bunch of your stuff. And no one wants it. And it's amazing how useful. And when you're walking around that farm 20 years ago, uh, everything on the property, you could be like, yeah, well, I need that in case this goes out. And, uh, well, just a couple years ago that went out, and I had an extra one. So you keep the broken one because it still has some good parts. Stuff I, think, is, I think something that needs to be referenced here is that what we witnessed was kind of planned obsolescence when part of what fascinates me about the potato peeler that weighs 97 pounds mm -hmm. is that it was built to last to peel potatoes forever for fucking ever dude and to yeah to I never mean, go away you could to never sharpen be discarded. that blade and and put some oil on that handle and be peeling potatoes tomorrow but replaceable parts and and yeah or if you didn't have a part, then you jerry-rig something because that's you fix stuff. Mm -hmm. And you kept it working forever. And that's an interesting ethic and a shift that happened between my dad's generation and mine where things became so mass-produced and disposable yes. that, you know, the ethic of, but you can't get rid of stuff, can you? Because it's supposed to be built to last and oh no this shit isn't really mm -hmm. built by the old standards so the old principles of our relationship with stuff had to change but it doesn't just happen instantly you can't just switch people off from thinking oh mm -hmm. this is i paid this much for it it's got to last for my grandchildren to peel potatoes on it mm -hmm. Or whatever versus, oh, the microwave's broken. Let's fucking check it. It it took a generation to ch to change that mindset. Like, you're not going to change my parents' mind. They, they're they set. It took a whole gener a generational change to make that change happen. We're now, we don't live in an extreme scarcity of everything. Uh, we can just, I was trimming my majestic beard on Tuesday night. Just kidding. It's not majestic. When... I you know what? It's approaching solid. I, I'm, it, it's a work in progress. I dropped my little beard trimmer, the Norelco One Blade. I'm sure we're all familiar. I was, I was just elbows on the table over a newspaper, just trimming the beard, and I butterfingered it. Newspaper? Do you have a pet that's pooping on it as well? Well, just so I'm not getting whisker stuff everywhere. So I'm just sitting there, and I butterfingered it and dropped it, and the little head, it dropped just right, and it just broke. There's no salvaging it. There's no replacing. What? It just broke. That was Tuesday night. Unacceptable. Thursday when I got home from work, I had a new Norelco one blade so I could finish the, the job. And I was a little more careful, making sure I didn't drop it and break the blade off. But to, like you said about Amazon, like I just... Like, in one motion, I dropped this thing, watched it break, and my hand was on a mouse ordering another one. And it said, it'll be here by Thursday. And it was like, 
Great. I won't look stupid on Thursday. So we got a couple of farms in the process of being liquidated here. And for all the reasons, you know, it's hard for everybody. Nobody loves doing it. It's a hard job. It sucks. Uh, and we have a racetrack in Chicago that's closing. And it's meant a lot to a lot of people for a very long time. It doesn't matter what it meant to them. It's all about me. <laughs> and what it meant... Well, exactly. To me. It's, you know, and I'm sure, I'm sure you're getting hot takes from uh, neighbors back home, from people in your orbit. I'm sure there's a hot take out there of like, oh, do you have to sell the place? Oh, why would you do that? It's, oh, it's so beautiful. And, it's so, and we're, we're getting that. And, and, you know, one answer is like, do you want to buy it? Do you want to take care of this place? Do you want to live here? Yeah, yeah, and it's a, it's a million things, and like, and that is definitely hard. Uh, and I'm trying to relate it to the racetrack. It's what? Oh, why? Why would they close that? Why would they do that? Oh, it should stay open. Well. And I guess the best, uh, so the farms, you know, it's been in your family for four generations. Uh, our farm actually went through many hands, many people, as you read through the, uh, the abstract. Um, many people have tried and failed at that farm. And it's kind of weird, actually, that one person sold it to a number of people and then just ended up repossessing it. And then another... And then, and then another person would come up and give it a try, and then they would fail, like on a land contract, no bank. They would just like buy it from him, and then they would fail, and then the, he'd end up getting it back. It was clearly cursed. Well, I, there's reasons for that. I could probably describe reasons for that. And, uh, but what, what your family and what my family has to arrive at and maybe this is too thin of a connecting tissue here, but what the city has to just come to grips with is like, it's over. Mm-hmm. It's going to be different now. Like it was, that's what it was for a hundred years. Uh, Times change. And it's over. And what occurred to me, uh, you know, also in our somewhat hilarious trip to Chicago with all of our little kids is... Uh, we got a book like uh, Chicago Then and Now, and it was all these 100-year-old photos and then a photo taken in the exact same place today. Ah. And, of course, this book is 20 years old or whatever, but mm-hmm. uh, the gates of a slaughterhouse in 1880 <laughs> is now the entrance to a beautiful park in 1980. And this building that was the Woolworths in 1880 is now the blank, 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 whatever if building. I mean, and r- all that's left of it is like one arched doorway and a couple of the original Bricks. pointy windows or something like that. In the landscape. And, it, and all you can do is look at it and say, it's over. You know, It changed. That's what it did then. It's over. 
you cannot we can whine and complain and be sentimental. What's reality? And why do things have to change and blah 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 blah. I also think about uh in that book of a hundred years apart photos in Chicago, it's like the beaches would be like, here's a photo of a beach on a Sunday afternoon. And here's everybody out there in their bathing costume. Uh, and it's just, cr- it's just wall to wall people, uh, hordes of people. Okay. That was a hundred years ago. Now that's all expensive, uh, Lake Michigan beachfront property. And all those scads and scads of people live in the suburbs or, you know, not, not shitting on the suburbs, not, not nothing like that. It's just things had a certain way and were used a certain way. And all we do is change. And it's just it's just over. It's just different. And we. Whoever ends up with our farm. 50 years from now, it's going to be somebody else's. What I'm reflecting on, I guess, that is interesting is just that Chris isn't fond of Palatine, really. But it was interesting that when this park went up for sale, that is a big part of Palatine, it touched her and affected her in a way, not because it meant something to the place, I don't think, but because... It represented a connection to her father. Of course. It was something that was special to him, and we had memories there together. So that meant it was special to me. And he wasn't a man who emoted, you know. He he didn't express himself in other ways. So for him to, like I said, he wasn't, like, exuberant and watching the races and emotional and Come on, Sam. expressive. So for him to say, for me as a kid to understand this thing meant something to him and I get to be a part of that world of something that means something to him, that was the connection. Well, see, it's interesting for me to see how for you, your connection to your dad was based on something that was sort of like a pastime. Whereas for me, our livelihood was built into the place where we lived. The totally fiel- different. Yeah, mm-hmm. the fields surrounded our house, and our grandfather had tilled that soil, and his father had tilled it before him. And so it was deeply personal, and it was also deeply isolated, even though the, the community was fairly tight-knit once you got into it. Like... Every man had his own kingdom to a degree. You know what I mean? There was a there was a individuality to each farmstead and each owner operator of that place that gave it a richness that you with the exception of spunky dunkers, you know, felt on some level the absence of when sure although we would have given anything to have you know kfc nearby for their delicious delicious biscuits kfc is has no soul you don't know who owns it you don't know the people serving you 
Right. Well, convenience is not a substitute for substance or for connection or for value. Convenience is wonderful. I loved going to 7-Eleven and getting a super big gulp. That was great. It was <laughs> really convenient. But you were so hydrated. I was so hydrated. Not really. Diet Coke isn't really hydrating, but you peed a lot and you got you have diabetes now, but go on. I think that's the danger of the suburbs is it's an illusion. It an illusion of abundance? Yeah, it's an illusion of abundance because a lot of it is um surface and a lot of it is not all of it. I mean, like there are some people that I grew up with that stayed there, you know, but um there is kind of this sense that it's all on a treadmill like the changes that happen this restaurant replaces another restaurant that gas gas station it's not a shell anymore it's an amico you know what i mean it's not like significant change whereas what you guys are describing is significant change happening to your communities and your homes and your the entire landscape. Now, granted, the race course leaving does change the landscape of Palatine. It's a big one. It's, it is it is massive, but it's not like what happened to the farming industry where family farms became unsustainable and, you know, the entire way of life. And, like, all of a sudden these little towns had no businesses essentially anymore. And there were just these pockets of, like commuter towns or places that could absorb the traffic from the surrounding areas that were otherwise starved or cut off from their supply chains. Right. Like what Dan was saying about things change. I feel like the change Usually not that, that dramatically in a space of a generation or two, right? Like the changes that happen for you guys represent the change like massive generational changes in just industry like whereas the suburbs like i said maybe the amico is not an amico maybe it's a mobile they're insulated because they just the demand is there it's been there it's still there it hasn't changed the model story building now it's a four-story or you know what i mean there's not too much i don't know i just three pancakes you get four so that's why it feels like the the racetrack closing it maybe represents something similar to what you guys describe with uh, the family farm becoming something that's... Hundreds of years of history really just getting kind of discarded and replaced with something else. Yeah, I mean, I don't know necessarily that it's bad. I'm grieving it, but that's because I have a personal connection to it. So. Well, and more than anything, I think you're just observing it too. You know, like, it's okay to say, wow, this is a massive change without, therefore, saying, it ain't like the old days and you all are living a bullshit life now. Yeah, no, I'm not saying that. I do, I am really interested in the take of the people who are living there now, though. I wonder if I'll maybe connect with someone or a couple people that are, because the bears, if the bears move, the bears, bears, if they move there... It'd be a big deal. If there is a way to close this, I think it's uh, the bears still suck. 
That's a wrap. That is a wrap. Me while I play as a fly enthusiasm aimed at your indifference Scan the floor for one tap and do a bobbin here Any signal coming back on the same left for Rick frequency wavelength How's the reception connection? Don't flip the dial, that's your performance It's commercial free, it's commercial free Only thing for sale up here is me and my CD You're free to catch up on all times at the top of your lungs Got a mic and I can turn it up but I can't turn you down Got a mic what I need to do Let's more, more is what I'm telling you.